Good, ev- good evening, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's Tuesday, September 17th, and we thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Savage. And I'm Andrew Eichen. Tonight we bring you coverage on a movement in North Carolina highlighting a problem faced by our public education system, as well as an invention with its roots right here at NC State. In addition, in addition, we've got the first part in a series about forest fires. But here's Andrew with news. Thanks, Nick. Aaron Alexis, the man who yesterday killed 12 people in Washington's Navy Yard, has been revealed to have had a history of violent behavior and mental illness. As recently as August, Alexis contacted police in Newport, Rhode Island, telling them he believed he was being pursued by unknown individuals who could speak to him through walls. In 2010, the Navy moved to discharge him due to a pattern of misconduct observed by two officials. He had previously contacted two veteran affairs hospitals, possibly seeking treatment for psychological issues, and had twice discharged firearms in what he called anger-fueled backouts. Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff has called off her scheduled visit to Washington next month after Edward Snowden leaked documents alleging that the NSA had been intercepting emails and messages between her, her aides, and the state oil company Petrobras. President Obama has promised to investigate. And the five permanent U.N. Security Council members have begun talks on a Western-drafted U.N. Security Council resolution to eliminate Syria's chemical weapons. After disagreeing on the wording of the French and Russian drafts, diplomats agreed to meet again tomorrow. And that's the news. Thanks, Andrew. And now we'd like to welcome back to the studio tonight our longtime, our former longtime meteorologist, Katie Costa. She's here live with our forecast for the next week, and Katie... I must say, it's so nice to have you back in the studio. We really did miss you. Well, it's really good to be back. Thanks, Nick. Sure. Well, okay, so it seemed pretty cool out there today compared to the past few days. Uh, how long do you think this is going to continue? What Basically, what can we expect for the next week? Well, Nick, that's a good question. Uh, today it was cool and breezy out there because of a cold front that passed through last night. Today we saw temperatures climb only into the mid-70s, which is about a 10-degree drop from where we were yesterday. This evening will be even cooler with lows in the lower 50s. So be sure to throw on a light jacket if you are planning on heading out there tonight. Tomorrow we will be right around where we were today with highs in the mid to upper 70s and mostly sunny skies thanks to a Canadian high pressure system in place over the triangle. We will see some increasing cloud cover moving in on Wednesday evening, so it will be slightly warmer than tonight with lows in the mid 50s. On Thursday, temperatures will climb back up into the 80s, which is about normal for this time of year, with a high of around 82 degrees and mostly sunny skies. Overnight Thursday, we will cool down to 55 degrees and partly cloudy skies. Now, Friday looks like the best day of this work week since it will be warmer with a high of around 86 degrees and sunny skies. So if you can, try to get outside on your lunch break Friday because it's going to be a beautiful day. Overnight Friday, we will stay fairly mild with a low of around 60 degrees and partly cloudy skies. So expect an overall pleasant evening out there if you are planning on heading out downtown Friday evening. Now for your weekend forecast. Taking a look at your weekend ahead, Saturday looks like the best day to get outdoors since we will be seeing sunny skies and highs in the mid to upper 80s. Saturday is the best day to hit the pool because by Saturday evening, we will begin to hear some bumpers. Yep, that's right. We have a 30% chance of showers and thunderstorms across the triangle on Saturday evening and on Sunday. Overall this weekend, though, we will see highs in the mid-80s and lows in the lower 60s. Now, this Sunday, September 22nd, marks the first official day of fall. And for all you fellow weather enthusiasts out there, this is also referred to as the autumnal equinox. 
The term equinox originated from the Latin root words equus, which means equal, and nox, which means night, because around the equinox, night and day are approximately equal in length. Now, an equinox occurs twice a year, around March 20th, which marks the first day of spring, and around September 22nd, which marks the first day of fall. The equinoxes are the only times when the subsolar point is on the equator. Now, you're probably wondering, subsolar point, what the heck is that? Well, the subsolar point is the place on the Earth's surface where the center of the sun is exactly overhead. At the autumnal equinox, the subsolar point crosses the equator, moving southward. So now hopefully you know a little more about the first day of fall and can pull a Sheldon on one of your friends before Season 7 of The Big Bang Theory airs next week. I'm meteorologist Katie Costa. Thanks for tuning in to WKNC's Weather here on Eye in the Triangle. Back to you, Nick. Well, thank you for that very informative forecast, Katie. You're welcome. Now here's Ben with your Wolfpack Sports Update. This is Ben Hefner with the Eye in the Triangle Sports Report. Three Wolfpack teams, women's golf, men's golf, and men's tennis, made their 2013-2014 season debut this week. The men's tennis team started their year in the Duke Fab Four invite, held in Cary, North Carolina. In the men's singles, black division, Robbie Mudge finished in fourth place, Sean Weber finished in fifth place, and Thomas Weigel finished in the Constellation third place. In the men's single blue division, Austin Powell finished in fourth place, and Beck Bond finished in sixth place. The men's tennis team will next be in action on September 20th in Charlottesville, Virginia at the UVA Plus One Tournament. The women's golf team finished fourth in the Cougar Classic with a score of 863, just four shots behind tournament winner Florida. The pack was led by senior Brittany Martian, who was the individual tournament runner-up with a score of 212. The women's golf team's next tournament will be in Tennessee at the Randolph-Macon Championship, which starts on September 20th. The men's golf team was also in action this week, capturing second place at the Tar Heel Intercollegiate, only falling to eighth-ranked Georgia Tech. Led by redshirt junior James Chapman, who posted a total score of 215, which gave him seventh place individually, the Wolfpack beat out local rivals seventh-ranked Duke and tournament host North Carolina. The men's golf team will be making quite a trek for their next tournament, traveling all the way to California for the St. Mary's Invitational starting on September 23rd. The volleyball team faced their first setback of the season, losing to Missouri in the opening game in the Rice Tournament. However, they recovered well and went on to beat both Houston Baptist and Rice by the score of three sets to one. Alicia Wilson and Alston Kearns were both named to the all-tournament team. This weekend moved their total season record to 8-1. and one. The volleyball team returns to action September 20th, right here in Raleigh to kick off the North Carolina State Courtyard Midtown Invitational, which will be aired in its entirety on ESPN3. The women's soccer team played two games this week, winning 1-0 in exciting fashion against Pittsburgh on the road and losing 3-1 to a very strong 6th-ranked Notre Dame team at home. Freshman striker Jackie Stingle scored a clutch 90th-minute goal to secure the ladies' first ACC win since 2011. While the Wolfpack lost against Notre Dame, defender Shelly Spamer did provide a spectacular goal, scoring off a well-struck free kick from near midfield. Their results this week bring them to a record of 6-2 and two with a 1-1 one one record in the ACC. The women's soccer team will travel to Florida this Thursday to take on Miami in their third ACC contest. The men's soccer team was also in action twice this week, beating William & Mary 2-1 in double overtime and then losing to ninth-ranked Clemson at home. Preseason All-American Alex Martinez equalized in the second half for the pack, 
and the sophomore Holden Fender scored his first goal as a member of the Wolfpack off a free kick to win the game against William & Mary in double overtime. State gave up a goal in the first minute against Clemson, but then thoroughly outplayed them the rest of the game. Unfortunately, we were not able to equalize, but playing so well against a nationally ranked team is a good sign for the future. They hit the road this Friday to play Virginia. The football team had a well-timed bye week, as they will be facing off against Clemson, the third-ranked team in the nation, this Thursday. The game will be aired on national TV on ESPN. A pep rally for the game will be held on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock on the lawn between Lee and Bregal Halls. Come get pumped for what is arguably the pack's biggest football game of the year. This has been Ben Hefner with the Eye on the Triangle Sports Report. Thanks, Ben. In response to recent cuts in public education spending here in North Carolina, a local teacher was compelled to start the Red for Ed movement to highlight the problems associated with such budget cuts. Here's her story. Let's start off with you introducing yourself and telling us how you're affiliated with Red for Ed. My name is Angela Scioli, and I am a teacher at Leesville Road High School, and I have been there for 20 years. I'm a social studies teacher. I'm sort of the founder of Red for Ed NC. It was an idea that I floated out among my peers that kind of caught fire and led to the founding of the group. But now the group is much larger than me, I'm happy to report. And we've got lots of fans out there, too, so I count them among the family as well. For those who don't know, what exactly is Red for Ed? Red for Ed is a group of classroom teachers, but now also community supporters of public education who are seeking to inform the public about what's going on with public education in North Carolina, inspire teachers to continue excellence in instruction in their classrooms, even though it's a challenging time, and then also let people show their support for public education by wearing red on Wednesdays to help influence our decision makers in the state to understand that there's a moderate majority of people out there who really support strong public schools in North Carolina and is just an inherently important thing for a democracy that's truly going to be an opportunity society. What inspired you to try to make a change like this and to get the movement started? I was on vacation when the state legislature met. And so when I got home, I had a stack of newspapers to look at and um, I began reading them. And I just realized the devastating reality that classroom teachers were looking at this fall. And I cried. And then a bitterness started to grow in my heart. And I said, you know, I'm not going to continue to be treated this way. You know, I feel like I've really been kicked in the teeth here. It was was quite personal to me, actually. And so I decided I would be a teacher that just gave the minimum because I felt like that's what the state was giving us, that they were just giving us the very minimum. There wasn't a lot of sense in the budget that they really truly appreciated or had faith in what I was doing as a classroom teacher. So I decided I would just get up and show up at school at 6.55 and walk out the door at 2.48 and I'd I'd quit all the work at home and I would quit all the work on Saturday mornings and all weekend to prepare for my classroom and write college recommendations and and, uh, grade papers and and I did that for about two days. I carried that bitterness in my heart and I was really sad. If you asked me about it, what was going on in education, I'd tear up immediately. And it was then that I realized that I just couldn't do that. That's not why I got into teaching and I never wanted to be that teacher. You know, we've all had that teacher, that teacher whose heart really isn't in it. They have a profound effect on lots of people. So I decided I wasn't going to be that teacher. I was never going to be, so I was going to protest. And the way I was going to protest was by continuing to be the best educator I could be. But you can't do that by being quiet. And so I had to declare my protest. And that's when I started floating out this idea to my peers of declaring that I was protesting by being excellent and that that's an irrational act in this political climate, but that I was going to do it anyway. It really touched a chord with a lot of my peers who had been feeling the same way and thinking the same way and and just didn't want to be the kind of teacher that these uh, laws seem to be driving us to be. What negative impacts have you personally seen due to the recent education budget cuts? So, you know, I'm personally not doing so bad. I'm really feeling it for the people who came in after me who've been working for six years. One of the members of our board who's just amazing. She's just incredibly smart and 
innovative and uh, talented young woman. And, and she's been teaching for six years. And in that six years, I've seen such growth in her ability to motivate and, and inspire students. And she's still making the starting salary that she made when she started. And we're just not going to keep those kind of people in the profession. The other thing that's really interesting, though, that there's an aspect of the law that a lot of people aren't aware of. And it's part of our mission to try and help them see that. Another thing that's going to affect all uh, classroom teachers in the next year is that the law says that by May, um, principals have to pick 25 percent of the teachers in their faculty to be what they consider to be the best teachers in their school. And those 25% of teachers, there's no single criteria that principals are going to be able to use either. This is really a question of how they're going to pick the 25% best teachers in their school. It's really hard in a comprehensive high school, as you can imagine, if you have a band director, a choral director, a science teacher, a PE teacher. How are you going to measure them against each other in a way that you can articulate as to why one is better than the other? That top 25%, they're going to have to tell them that they're the top 25% and offer them a four-year contract. And when they sign that four-year contract, they'll sign away their career uh, status, their tenure. All teachers will lose their tenure status in 2018, but this is an incentive to try and get the best teachers to give their ear status up early. Now that we found that out as teachers, the way that's impacting us is it undercuts collaboration in the classroom and among teachers because do you want to share your best lesson plans with your department members if you're competing against them? Because there's going to be $500 bonuses given out to the teachers that are in that top 25%. So suddenly you really want to shine compared to your peers. That's a reality as teachers have to decide this May, do you want to be in the top 25%? What are you going to do to be in that top 25%? And are you going to take the money to sign away your career status? How do you feel this budget cut will affect the way that students get an education in the future? What I'm really afraid about is that we're about to get the teaching pool that we deserve. And that is not in the best interest of our students. Our best and brightest are not going to consider teaching anymore because there's going to be a lot more opportunities for them and teaching just isn't going to look that attractive. How would you like to see this issue resolved dealing with education budget cuts? I want to speak just for me personally at this point and not the organization Red for Red NC because we have not really put forth a full platform of policy recommendations at this point. I think we should have a model more like Finland where you pay teachers beginning salaries that are incredibly competitive with private corporate structures and you make it incredibly um, rewarding and highly respected to go into teaching. And you get your really best and brightest to go into teaching. And then you don't have to do all of the cleanup and create all the bureaucracy to make sure teachers are doing what they're doing. Now, sort of switching pathways, what inspired the use of the color red for Red for Ed? Is there any significance behind that? Red's really the color of passion, and we really do feel passionately about what we do. Red's the color of love. I do what I do out of love. I love my students, and I I love the opportunity to feel like I'm contributing in a positive way to society. But there's also a little bit of mad in red. (laughs) I won't deny that I'm, I'm a little bit mad. I really don't like the direction that we're heading in, and I feel passionately that we need to do something about it. I noticed on your website how there's an area for donations. What exactly are the donations going towards? Right now, the the organization has about $500 um, total that we have um, had in donations. And right now, we're trying to think about the most economical way to purchase things to help get our message out. So we're looking at uh, bumper magnets, buttons, and also uh, bracelets that people can wear to show their support for the organization, help, help spread the word. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention that I didn't ask about or that you would just like to offer further explanation for? We're going to launch a new website soon. Part of the way we're going to try and get people to our website is to see if we can attract some celebrities who will take two pictures of themselves, one with a red masquerade mask in front of their face and one with the masquerade mask away from their face. On Tuesday, we'll put the the masked person uh, on our website saying, who can guess who's also wearing red Fred tomorrow? And then we'll have that reveal picture on the website on Wednesday. Um, And we're hoping that I'll bring more traffic to the website. So if there's anybody out there who has some connections with... uh, 
local personalities in the area. We would love to hear that. Also, I just want to put a shout out to our NC State students. We think if there's anybody who's well positioned to be wearing red on a Wednesday, <laughs> it would be the students right here at NC State's campus. And we know that um, since you're attending a public university that um, you understand the power and, and importance of public education. We've tried to get a little campus competition going on. The Meredith Angels uh, so far in, in the lead. They've got the best picture posted on Red Fred NC's website. So I just like to put a challenge out to all the students to uh, and see if we can get some NC State students uh, in a picture on a Wednesday posted on redfrednc.com. If anyone were to want to contact you or to get involved with this movement, how could they go about doing so? If they go to uh, redfrednc.com, uh, that's our website, but we also have a Facebook page, and there's ways to post messages there. We're checking it every day and all the time. Um, you can post pictures there of you and your friends gathered together wearing Red for Ed. So that's probably the best way to get in touch with us, and we are really excited and open to any type of collaboration with existing student groups who might hear this message and, and really want to pitch in and help out. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and speak with us about Red for Ed. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Up next, a product that aims to revolutionize supermarket shelves. We'll take a quick break, but stick with us for the story. Welcome back to Eye on the Triangle. Jar with a Twist is the entrepreneurial venture of some graduating engineering students here at NC State. With a problem and an innovative solution, the group is likely to see some heightened interest in the near future. Have you ever opened a jar of peanut butter, ready to scoop some onto your sandwich, only to find that the jar is nearly empty? with the last usable bit requiring some feat of knife maneuvering to extract? Well, Jar With a Twist is looking to make that a thing of the past. We essentially dug deeper and deeper to the root of the problem, at which point we found that the problem was the packaging itself, which, by the way, has remained completely unchanged since 1988. And since then, it's remained very stagnant, no change or innovation since then. That's Michael Bissett, a chemical engineer graduating this fall, and he's one of the four co-founders of Jar With a Twist. I'm kind of the CIO, Chief Innovative Officer. Stephen Smith is the Chief Technical Officer with his triple major in Mechanical, Computer, and Electrical Engineering. Sean Echevarria is the Chief Business Officer with his background in real estate, and he's a mechanical engineer that just graduated. The team developed the idea during an engineering entrepreneur's class and were inspired to take the initiative and make their concept a reality. That's where the nurturing of this idea took place and really where something that may have just been a great idea could have just died out. But because this class was very structured, meeting twice a week, really promoting the development of a new product, they had a lot of kind of strategies in place that really pushed us and made us think outside the box. Spencer Vaughn, a chemical engineer who is the chief financial officer, explains the group's thought process. We drew a lot of our inspiration from deodorant or chapstick, things like that, that you can bring what's at the bottom all the way to the top. Through the Entrepreneurship Initiative program, the group had access to The Garage, a workshop located on Centennial Campus with many resources, including a 3D printer. It's new technology, and we've all been reading about it, and, and so suddenly this was something that we were able to play with, and we were allowed to go in there and build something from scratch. And part of the class was actually sometime early in the second semester of the class, you actually had to bring a prototype in for a grade. And that was an assignment for the class. So the chief technical officer, Stephen Smith himself, our resident genius, went in and talked to one of the guys that worked in the garage and figured out really how to use the 3D printer. Very hands-on. So we went down there one day and printed one. And eight hours later, we kind of had this proof of concept, very simple, just a cylinder with threads of it and a little plunger thing that fit into those threads that you could twist up. And it worked. And we put some peanut butter in it. And it was not very hard to turn. And we decided to kind of just refine the prototype from there. Improvements since the initial prototype include moving the threads from outward facing to inward facing so that labeling of the jar is easier. They've also redesigned the jar several times to make injection molding possible, thereby allowing for mass production. 
In terms of other areas for improvement, Mike explains that the plastic used is not an issue. A lot of people see our YouTube video or hold our prototype and it's made out of this opaque plastic, right? This ABS low melt plastic that's designed to be used in 3D printers. But the final product itself in production will be PET plastic, the same clear plastic, you know, food safe, recyclable, very easy to apply labels on. In addition, the jar has much more potential than just for peanut butter. So for the class, we were just focusing on peanut butter. And it was easier for that because we had to do market analysis. But since we've begun moving on past that, one of the biggest ones we've seen interest in is cosmetics. Because you get these face creams and whatnot that are $100 and they want to get the very last ounce. So when you can get 99, 100% of accuracy with our jar, then suddenly it's worth it. There's that. Also salsas, chip dips. Even industrial applications like car grease. And there's also been a very big interest in a reusable version of the jar. People have emailed us. People have commented on our YouTube video asking questions about a reusable version. And, you know, that could be something that we develop down the road. But right now, we're just keeping our sites focused on a recyclable, kind of disposable version that you would find in a grocery store. According to the team's research, their jar will add only $0.03 to the production cost, resulting in a $0.25 price increase for consumers. As Mike explains, the value of the jar is something companies are not ignoring. You know, there's only so many people, for instance, in the U.S., and they eat X amount of peanut butter every year. The type of jar that it's made is not really going to have a huge reflection on how much peanut butter is eaten. But what can change is which company these consumers buy their peanut butter from. So we are really advertising the fact that wh- whichever company chooses, let's say one peanut butter company chooses to use Jar of the Twist to put their to put their peanut butter in. Well, we would expect to see a big fluctuation and actual increase in the amount of people that choose that peanut butter simply because of the added value that they're getting out of this product that they're buying. One of the largest points of criticism of the product is the concern that, as the inner platform is twisted up the cylinder, some peanut butter will be left on the inner surface of the jar. This, as the team has been quick to address, is not, in fact, the case. There's actually not going to be any residue left. You can compare the plunger or the rotating platform, if you will, going up through the cylinder. Compare that to like a car piston. It's called a press fit, and it's literally just the pressure of the inside surface on the outside surface is enough to seal whatever's inside. Like car engines, the pistons use press fits. And that's enough to contain literally an explosion going on inside the piston. So two PET services rubbing up against each other, very low friction as far as sliding past each other, but they're fitted together tight enough to the point that the seal between the platform and the cylinder is airtight and watertight, keeping your peanut butter or whatever other condiments in there fresh. And there will not be any residue left on the inside. So it's going to be perfectly clean when you screw it up. The future is exciting for the Jar with a Twist team, and they're exploring many options. So right now, we're actually in the process of basically whittling down the offers we've had. So we've created a metrics to compare each of these and then decide who we're going to move forward with, whether it's a, a licensing deal or just a complete buyout and we say, see you later and take our money. There's a lot of things to consider, but yeah, we're, we're trying to decide what our next move is now, who we move forward with. And I would say within a year, we would love to see Jar of the Twist on shelves. Maybe not in full force. It might not be everything, but some of the products that you currently buy in normal, traditional condiment jars, we would love to see those on shelves in Jar of the Twist. Thanks to a good dose of luck, the group has had lots of exposure and media coverage. We actually, by some fate of God, got onto the front page of Reddit and things just exploded. And so we went from two or 3,000 views on our YouTube video to like 300,000 now. And from Reddit, people as big as the Today Show and Good Morning America found us and did little segments on us. Gizmodo, which is to some people a very revered place of new technologies, you know, they caught on and and wrote a pretty good article about us. A lot of other smaller news channels, their websites had some kind of copy and paste type articles about us. 
But all in all, the name is out there. It's on the internet, and the internet is a powerful tool for communication. Yeah, honestly, one of the biggest contributions to our success and what's created the virality of like our whole ad campaign is that people are liking it and they're talking about it. And so we've had companies come to us and say, "Hey, our intern was talking about you today." Or you know, I mean, it's very non-traditional the way that we're getting all these meetings to help the group and spread the word. Be sure to share the video from their website, jarwithatwist.com, and like their Facebook page for updates. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. This week, Dave interviewed a professor right here at the College of Natural Resources about the varying nature and functions of fires. Here's the first in a series of their discussion. If you could please just give us your name and uh, introduce us to you. Yeah, I'm Dr. Royce. I'm a professor of forestry, and I've been here for 20 six years at North Carolina State University. Excellent. So we're here to talk about fires. Now, could you give us a little bit of background about wildfires in the U.S.? It's a big topic. It's a big topic, and of course it's on the news every night. Now, for the whole summer, it's been a, a big item, and it has been every year for the past couple decades. We've been having more and more wildfires mainly in the western United States, but also in the east. We've had some very big ones in North Carolina within the past five years, and Florida had a huge one a couple years ago, it seems like. There was a big one in Myrtle Beach last year. I'm not sure if you're aware of that one, but some houses, a lot of property was threatened by fires moving in off of a wild area into the uh, developed area. So wildfire is a, a major part of the ecosystem's of the United States, and it always has been. In in forestry classes, we get to learn sort of about a a pre-European America and how and what fire was doing in our ecosystems then, and then after we came along, uh, the Europeans came along, what changed there, and what's fire's new role? What's it been pushed into? Okay, let's go back into pre-European history then. Uh, When Native Americans populated the United States, um, not, not nearly as much as they are today, but um, they had a very high populations before Europeans set foot on the continent. And they commonly would light the forest on fire to improve the foraging habitat or wildlife to help just clear the land around their settlements for protection purposes so that they could see something happening. People couldn't sneak up on them. And this was happening all over the United States. North Carolina was probably burnt over frequently, probably someplace around every one to three years the whole state would be burnt off. That does not mean all the trees are burned. That just means because they're doing it so consistently, you have a bunch of litter on the ground that they burn, and that just goes back into nutrients into the soil, and it was a system that they established. That was happening out west also. It wasn't just happening in the east, but it was all over North America. Then comes the Europeans, and early settlers learned from the Native Americans, and they kind of duplicated that. In fact, in the southeast, we've never really lost our connection with fire and maintaining the ecosystems that the humans needed at at this time to survive. Out west, the same thing. You look at Lewis and Clark and their journals, and it sounds like there was fire everywhere they went. Everybody was always burning. It was you know, very wasteful. They couldn't understand what was going on because every all the Native Americans were burning off everything, it sounded like. So take that up through modern times now. 
So in the southeast and in the west, it wasn't uncommon for settlers to burn off the underbrush. That was the easiest way to convert a ecosystem from pre-fire ecosystem into something that they could plow and raise crops with. So they were doing that a lot. And that went up pretty much through about the year, I'll say, 1910. So what happened in 1910 that made things change? 1910 was a big year for fires. They had huge fires out west that actually changed the way not just the people, but also the government thought about fires and the role they played in the ecosystems. For instance, in 1910 was the year of the, the big blow up in the northwest. And three million acres burned. And... Somewhere around 200 to 300 people died, firefighters mainly, trying to fight those fires. And there was a big controversy. Should we just let it burn? Because the only thing that was really burning was trees. And if we couldn't really get to those trees because they were so remote back then, maybe we ought to just let them burn. So, But the Forest Service took the other tack that, well, you're destroying a resource that we need to use to build the country. And uh, we should be protecting that. And so the debate ranged and by, I'm not sure of the date, but sometime in the 30s, the Forest Service came up with the 10 a.m. policy, which basically said all fires, once discovered, will be out by 10 a.m. the next day. And then give that a few years to mature. And when people, when all the soldiers and Marines and sailors came back from World War II, they were put to work. And so they, these are people who are used to hard work out there. And they really gave a lot of attention to suppressing fires. So this is in 1945, say. So in 1945 to 1950, in that range, we had a huge change in the way things operated in the country. And basically, it was fire suppression. That's all we've got for this week. Tune in next week for part two of Fire in the U.S. And now, here are the campus happenings for the next week. Talk to me so you can see Here's what's going on at NC State. Wednesday at 3 o'clock is the major exploration series for currently undecided or exploring NC State students. Undergraduate students across the university are invited to the Witherspoon Sankofa Room to explore the various majors within the College of Sciences and the College of Textiles. Thursday is the 5th Annual Pinhole Camera Challenge at the Craft Center. If you like mysterious, dreamy images and prefer to work intuitively, then pinhole photography might be perfect for you. Join the Craft Center on Thursday or Friday to make your own pinhole camera, and again on Saturday or Sunday to learn how to use the camera and develop the photos. Find out all the details and how to register on the Craft Center website. Thursday night, be sure to support the pack as we play Clemson at 7.30pm. Saturday is the Triangle Indoor Water Festival, where swimmers of all skill levels are invited to come help raise money. A portion of the proceeds will be going to the lab of Dr. Kavanaugh. Dr. Kavanaugh's research could make current chemotherapy regimes up to 1,000 times more effective. This weekend at the Witherspoon Student Cinema, The Hangover Part 3, Monsters University, and Fight Club will be shown. For more information on these events and more, visit ncsu.edu slash calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. And as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. Also, be sure to check out our blog at WKNC.org, where you can also download our podcast. 
Well, that's all we have for you for now. Be sure to tune in next week for the next in Dave's discussion of fires. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. And I'm Andrew Eichen. Good night. <laughs>